Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at all things royal, brought to you from the Mail's Kensington HQ, just a stone's throw from the palace. I'm Jo Elvin and joining me on the panel this week is Dickie Arbiter, the Queen's former press spokesman and the Daily Mail's diary editor, Richard Eden. Welcome to you both. But before we speak to them, let's hear from Rebecca English, the Daily Mail's royal editor. Rebecca, hello. Prince Charles faced more questions about his charitable fundraising at the weekend. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this latest set of allegations involve a slightly controversial Conservative peer called Lord Brownlow, who was said to have received an honour from the Prince of Wales shortly after bailing him out to the tune of £1.7 million in connection with a failed eco-village he'd hoped to build up in Scotland in connection with Dumfries House, which is the seat of his charitable empire. Uh, Lord Brownlow was also said to have given millions of pounds in donations towards the Prince's uh, charities in return for being invited to dinners, being allowed to hold his birthday party at Dumfries House and generally enjoying good access to Prince Charles. Now, um, in the scheme of things, I think this is probably very much on the slightly less serious end of some of the stories we've seen recently, because, of course, Clarence House say, well, philanthropists are often uh, rewarded with honours uh, to thank them for their generosity towards uh, charitable causes. But, of course, it does shine yet another unwelcome spotlight on the way the Prince of Wales's charities have been run in the past. And... Just for a change, Rebecca, you've been with the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall this week. Do you think any of this is affecting them? Yes, I have been, and apologies, I would have been with you in the studio today, but I had the journey from hell back from Wales to London by train last night. Um, but in, in short, the answer to your question is no, actually, the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall looked on great form the last couple of days. Um, as Prince of Wales, Charles likes to spend a week in the country around this time of year every year, uh, meeting individuals and organisations that are doing uh, good work in their communities, trying to meet as many Welsh people as possible. From those that I spoke to uh, appeared incredibly grateful that they had come there to uh, to highlight uh, the work that they were doing. So if he is feeling it privately, he's not showing it publicly. And I think more importantly for him, the people he's meeting don't seem to be massively affected by some of the sensational headlines we've been reading over the last few weeks and months. And amid all the political madness at Westminster yesterday, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson found his time for his weekly audience with the Queen. How on earth do you think that went? Yes, there's a great deal of political turmoil in the UK at the moment. Um, and I think if you believe in having a monarch as head of state, this is where the Queen shines uh, strong and true through all of the mire, um, not getting involved in the uh, political fray. Uh, on Wednesday night, she had her weekly audience with the Prime Minister by telephone. He in Downing Street and she at Windsor Castle. Oh, to be a, a fly on the wall for that conversation. And we understand, although this hasn't been confirmed by Buckingham Palace so on Thursday morning, uh, Boris Johnson called the Queen personally to inform her that he would be tendering his resignation as Prime Minister. She will meet with him again when he eventually leaves office, but that could take uh, many weeks from now. Um, and one thing we should emphasise is that Boris Johnson is the Queen's 14th Prime Minister. Her first was uh, Winston Churchill back in the 1950s. So it's fair to say she's seen experience and heard it all. And every Prime Minister that has uh, worked alongside her has always talked warmly about her wise head, her sound counsel. And I'm sure uh, no one will be more grateful than Boris Johnson for that right now. 
Thank you, Rebecca. Let's bring in my panel now. Tiki, how do you think the Queen would have handled yesterday's extraordinary events? Quite frankly, the same way she's handled previous events with, with Prime Ministers uh, from the early 1950s when she came to the throne through to uh, the demise of, of um, Harold Macmillan, I think it was. She had five Prime Ministers. Uh, and she dealt with each one. It was one Conservative Prime Minister after another resigning. I mean, it, Churchill resigned uh, through age and ill health. Eden resigned through the Suez debacle. Then we had Macmillan. And after Macmillan was uh, Alec Douglas Hume. So she's had a lot of practice at it. <laughs> and she would have quite frankly taken it in her stride. She knows what's going on. Uh, but she's not going to start questioning him about what has been going on because as we've seen he's not he's been a bit economical with the truth even in the house of commons so um she's not going to go down that lane at all we know um she doesn't have any actual power to depose the prime minister but do you think that prime ministers listen to her in general and take um, her advice well we know, certainly know that they do i mean prime ministers including tony blair have said that she has a very persistent way with them and she she asks probing questions difficult questions and he felt that he was often being sort of jogged to th maybe think again about something and because of her long experience it's advice that they have come to value and who knows what she said to Boris last night mm. but he's um, resigning today and you know was that prompted by the Queen it's rather reminiscent isn't it Dickie of when Margaret Thatcher basically lost her power within the Conservative Party. How do you imagine that conversation would have gone? Do you think there would have been parallels between now and 1990? I don't think there would have been parallels because uh, with Mrs Thatcher there would have probably been an element of sympathy uh, in the way that it happened. This is something completely different what's happening now and the Queen has never experienced that. I don't think the country has ever experienced that with so many cabinet ministers walking out mm. turning their mm. back on the Prime Minister. You know the Vipers have really got it in for him. Uh, and who would want to take on the leadership with that lot of backbenchers? But no, there was an element of sympathy because the Queen admired Mrs Thatcher for having been the first female Prime Minister, uh, for having been for so long the first female Prime Minister, and she would have seen how it had happened. Uh, so there would have been sympathy. And look, at the end of the day, when Mrs Thatcher died, she gave her a semi-state funeral. Yeah. So that is a good indication of the relationship that they had. Mm, can't see that happening for Boris at the moment. <laughs> Goodness me. But let's move on. Richard, moving on to Charles now, and he's been accused of trying to deflect and distract from negative stories about those Fortnum and Mason's bags of cash by being photographed and seen with his grandchildren. Do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah, I should say that these are accusations made by um, Omid Scobie, who... Um, oh, your bestie. Uh, <laughs> regular yeah. viewers yeah. might know yeah. that I'm and not a big fan of, but he's made a big song and dance about how the royal family has been trying to spin bad news, and mm. by bad news he's talking about finances and these type of questions, by um, leaking stories to the press about um, Prince Charles and Camilla's first meeting with baby Lilibet when Harry and, Harry and Meghan and their family were here for the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Mm. And it is true that, um, you know, a source was briefing journalists about that, but, you know, why he was doing that is another matter. Mm. But, but also, he's made the accusation, Scobie has, that they were briefing um, about the allegations about Meghan's bullying to deflect from things. And that's, 
in my opinion, that's complete nonsense because this is something that the Royal Correspondents have been waiting to ask. Yeah. And, and they did wonder whether there would be any changes to human resources policy that would be announced in the, the annual review. So mm. I think that really doesn't hold up at all, his As claim. Well, what's to, your to, view? Well, the writer to what Richard has said, um, quite frankly, if nobody had briefed anybody about the fact that the Prince of Wales had met his granddaughter and his grandson after so many for such a long time it would have been seen as pretty strange uh, and people did want to know did they meet look quite frankly the cash in carrier bags and a hold all that had been out for days yeah you can't cover up something that's been out for days and been sort of endless coverage both on on television radio and, and in newspapers so it's a, it's a bit of stirring by very unhelpful people. Mm, mm -hmm. Interesting, but you, you, you can't look at Omid's tweets, can you? <laughs> no, no, Has he blocked no, you? He, yes, he did block me, yes. Um, which oh. I always think is strange for journalists. I mean, you know, unless you're abusive, which obviously I'm not, then I think as journalists you'd want to see each other's work. Well, I, Omid, if you're watching, come and join us anytime. <laughs> I don't <laughs> see, see his either, but then I don't follow him. <laughs> oh dear. Let's move on. What do you think Charles needs to do now, Dickie, to just draw a line under these stories about his finances? Well, he's drawn a line under it, uh, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, he's done nothing wrong. Uh, we're going back to uh, cash in, in carrier bags and a hold all uh, sort of 10 or 11 years ago. So th this is a very old story. It got deposited at the bank. They would have probably gone to the fi Financial Conduct Authority uh, to check everything was kosher. Uh, the charities would have checked as well. So why it's being resurrected now, it seems as though somebody with an axe to grind is creating a bit of mischief. But he's drawn a line under it. Uh, whether the Charities Commission investigate, whether the banks investigate further, that's a matter for them. But he hasn't done anything wrong. Unfortunately, you don't expect the Prince of Wales, an heir to the throne, to be accepting uh, cash in uh, Fortnum and Mason carrier bags. Could have been worse. It could have been in a duty-free bag. Exactly. <laughs> it's such a fabulous image. It's given us all that to, to play with anyway, hasn't it? But let's move on. 40 years ago this week, one of the most shocking breaches of royal security took place when a man broke into Buckingham Palace and made his way into the Queen's bedroom as she slept. The Daily Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kay, was one of the paper's news reporters covering the story. Can you believe it? He shares his extraordinary memories of that time. On July the 9th, 1982, a man called Michael Fagan clambered up the perimeter wall of Buckingham Palace. He didn't just do it once, he did it twice. Um, the second time only came about after his arrest for the first offence. But what happened was he managed to shin up the outside wall, all 14 feet of it, climb over the top, which I think had barbed wire at the top, and then shinned up a drainpipe, got access to the palace through an open window and wandered around, helped himself uh, to something to eat uh, and then after half an hour got bored and left and went out the same way again. Now he did trigger alarms but the police thought they were faulty. Two and a bit weeks later on July the 9th he decided to do it all over again. It was the early hours, it was just after sunrise, so it was quite light at that time and he more or less went the same route again over the wall, up the drain pipe and this time he managed to break into or wandered into the private apartments and found himself in the Queen's bedroom. What happened next, of course, is, is the stuff of history because he plonked himself down on the Queen's bed. He was bleeding heavily. He'd cut his hand on an ashtray on broken, a piece of broken glass. He'd also drunk a uh, half a bottle of wine by this stage. And the Queen 
naturally woke up um, and said memorably, what on earth are you doing here? Or, or worse, that effect. I mean, a, a terrifying situation for Her Majesty, of course. Um, uh, he, she didn't know who this man was or what he possibly represented to her. To the Queen's intense anger, I think, uh, barely controlled, uh, she couldn't get through to anyone she was dialing for an emergency number for assistance. The police or whoever was meant to answer the phone didn't respond, nobody came. Um, and eventually his, this, Fagan said he'd like a cigarette and she said she'd go and get him some. And she went out and she saw her housemaid, uh, Lizzie Andrews, um, who, who, who followed her back into the room and said, what on earth are you doing here, ma'am? Or uh, again, or worse to that effect. And um, the, the, the page, the, the butler who'd been walking the Queen's dogs for their early morning walk also returned. Between the two of them, between the housemaid and, and, and the footman, they managed to extract uh, Fagin from the Queen's bedroom. Uh, it was an astonishing breach of royal security, but of course it threw up all sorts of other questions because we then discovered, and it became widely reported, that the Queen did not share a bed with Prince Philip, or, or at least not regularly, and, and she slept alone. So uh, it wasn't just the, the physical invasion, but the, the invasion of her privacy too, that it's remembered for. I thought that I did intrude, and uh, I was a bit embarrassed by it. I mean, but that was the first time that I was actually stopped was when I went into the Queen's room, you know. And I, I don't know where the room is. It's not like it's on the door. So, you know, I didn't mean to intrude into her, but into her room. You know, if I'd have been challenged before that, we could have said security was great and he didn't get, you know, I didn't get very far. I think it changed the Queen in the sense that um, she had to get used to a, a much more intensive and invasive form of police protection. Um, police suddenly would, were treating the security of, of individual senior members of the royal family much more seriously than they had. Um, it, it meant that there were, there were more police, the presidents were always around her all the time, and they just weren't prepared to take risks. And, and I think that she found that uh, upsetting because it inevitably increased the, sort of the barrier between her and the people. And one of the things the Queen likes to do is to let people see her whenever she can, when, when she's out and about, or when she was out and about a lot. And, and you know, it, it did uh, cramp her style. Fagin was a, a rather disturbed young man. Um, he was, uh, he was, he was, obviously he was arrested and he was charged, but the charges uh, which were involved uh, breaking and entering and the theft of the wine which he drunk, you know, were dropped and he was sent to uh, uh, a secure unit for a while to be treated. He, of course, was um, fictionalised, uh, the, the break-in in the, that last series of The Crown, in which they the, the writers turned him into some sort of crusading uh, campaigner for, for change. They presented this idea that he wanted to talk about his unemployment and the difficulties faced facing young people on the streets. Nothing of the kind was true. Richard Caver, who must be a vampire, <laughs> was working on that story back then. But Dickie, you worked at the palace in the 80s. I imagine that memories of this incident were still rather fresh. It was rather fresh because in 1980, I was accredited to the palace as a court correspondent. At the time, I was working for LBC News Radio, as was an independent radio news, national news service. So I got accreditation. And I remember going in uh, on the day it was discovered and everybody was running around like headless chickens. I found it quite difficult. Well, not too difficult in getting in, 
<laughs> but it was slightly harder than it had been the previous day because I used to go in every day. And I discovered that, yeah, they had been uh, this incident, Michael Fagan. The police were nowhere to be seen because there's usually a policeman always outside the Queen's quarters. But he'd gone off because uh, his shift had ended and the replacement hadn't arrived. They'd ignored the Queen's panic button. Um, but Which just is staggering. It is staggering. It yeah. is staggering. But then security was pretty lax in those days. I mean, I used to wander around willy-nilly, going into all sorts of offices, speaking to all sorts of people. Do you think they so, talk at Buckingham Palace about the days they could leave the back door open? Like, you know, in all the old days. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, but it was, it was very lax. And then, you know, obviously they got a shock to the system and they tightened it up. But they're still today, here we are in the 21st century, have-a-go merchants who will want to get over those walls yeah. and get into the building. And they're still doing it. It's a real reminder, isn't it, about how much she's had to adjust in the course of her reign. The Queen understands there's got to be security, but she doesn't want American presidential security where there's swarming. Um, she needs to be seen. She needs a, an element of freedom, or she did, uh, to do her walkabouts and to talk to people. And it is very difficult to, to find a, a good balance. Uh, Windsor Castle, she's perfectly safe because it is a, it's a fort. Mm. Uh, and it's very difficult to get in. But as I said a moment ago, they always have a go merchants wanting to get into yes. Buckingham and, Palace. And as much as we can say, isn't it true, Richard, that you know it's unlikely to happen now, there actually have been some security breaches. There really have recently. been several. Yeah. I mean, the worst was on Christmas Day last year when there was an armed intruder was apprehended at, at Windsor when the Queen was at Windsor and other royals were too. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a serious issue and there have been plenty of others over the years. And, you know, security is a big issue. You're dealing with huge palaces. It's a, it's a difficult subject. Let's move on to a lighter subject now. And the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have been indulging their sporty sides this week, haven't they? Yeah, they've had a very sporty week. We've had the Duchess of Cambridge and, um, yeah. and Prince William at Wimbledon watching the quarterfinal, watching Cameron Norrie. Um, which they got very animated. They really do when they're watching. You know, it's, it's like when Prince William's watching the football, he gets a bit carried away. But that wasn't the only sport. Then the next day we had Prince William playing polo this time um, for a charity match that apparently raised a million pounds for various charities. So very um, admirable. We've gathered some photos here of her engrossed in the action and her enthusiasm is really clear, isn't it, for tennis, Dickie? Yeah, yeah. it, it is. Um, she, she's so well into the job that she's doing. There was a time when, after, shortly after she got married, <laughs> That's a good they, one. Called her, they called her lazy, yeah, didn't they, Richard? Yeah. Um, but she's so into the job, and she doesn't mind showing facial expressions. If something is amazing, she'll show amazing. If something is off, she'll show off. And if she's glad and happy because Norrie has won, she'll show it. I can tell it, when, you know what it's like when you're there, though. You really get so sucked into the atmosphere of it all, don't you? And even I'm not really a big tennis fan, but I've pulled those faces watching the tennis. You know, the one yeah. thing that really got me, got to me, was the togetherness of these two people. They are very together. Yeah. Any suggestion that they weren't is absolute nonsense. We saw at the polo with their arms around each other. We saw them at tennis engaging and, and laughing and joshing with each other. So they are very much a together couple and we're lucky to have them. Of course, it was always the Duke of Kent who was the, as president of Wimbledon, who'd be presenting the prizes. And we came to associate him and the Duchess of Kent with Wimbledon. 
and now he stepped down from that last year and so now we will see the Duchess again, I'm sure, this weekend, and you know, we'll associate her and William with oh, Wimbledon. Lucky for them, years to come. I love going to Wimbledon. <laughs> we'll stick around for more pictures from SW19 in a moment. But that is all we have time for on Palace Confidential today. Thanks to Rebecca English, Dickie Arbiter, Richard Kay, Richard Eden, and to you, of course, for watching. And as I said, summer's here and it's brought with it a favourite sporting event of the Royals and us too here at Palace, Wimbledon. To play you out this week, here is a gallery of the Windsors at the All England Club over the years. Bye bye.